Welcome, everyone. Welcome to our Monday evening gathering. And tonight I feel uh, lucky and so grateful that I get to introduce Molly. Molly, thank you so much for your willingness to offer us your reflections on this topic. For those of you who don't know, um, Molly is uh, she's a part of our, our Sangha here, and she's a botanist, a restoration ecologist. She has uh, 20 years of experience in this realm, working with people and the land. And she used to be a natural naturalist guide and a native plant farmer. She's still a native plant farmer, actually, citizen <laughs> science coordinator and an herbalist and a permacultural designer, rainwater harvester. And she uh, also has this um, uh, company that plants for the people that she runs with uh, Jeff. So you know Jeff, Jeff Bowler, uh, her husband, that's a native plant nursery and also a permaculture landscaping company. And I, I want to say, I, th I think this, this uh, talk, at least for me, this idea emerged out of uh, a mindful hike that Molly and I led, what was it, um, a couple months ago in the summer sometime. And I was so moved by some of Molly's reflections and I, I didn't twist her arm too hard. Okay, I didn't twist her arm, but I would have <laughs> to uh, share her reflections on this because I, I, I found it really important for our understanding of what it means to practice the Dharma in light of our, our current circumstances around uh, climate change. In light of that, I want to pass it on to you, Molly. Again, thanks so much for your willingness to share it to our Sangha. Thank you. And I really miss seeing some of you every week at the Sangha. Um, it's, it's nice to at least see your face in a little box now. And it's also really great being on the computer so that some of you can join who may not otherwise be able to. So welcome. And it's nice to see new faces as well. Um, as Brian said, I am a botanist and I do dryland restoration. And in my day job with the federal government, I also do climate adaptation planning for public lands. So because of all of those things that I think about, I also think a lot about climate change impacts and how to move through the changes that we're experiencing. And I'm really grateful for this opportunity to bridge my spiritual practice with my work, my day-to-day -day work. Um, and it makes me feel more whole to have this opportunity. And maybe some of you can relate and maybe some of you that are in conservation or um, work on the land in some way can also relate with this. And I hope it, it, so what I have to say resonates with you around that. Um, and it feels appropriate to talk about climate change and healing our sometimes broken relationship with the land um, today because you know all weekend Jeff and I have been harvesting everything from our garden to prepare for the freeze tonight and you know we were just spent the last hour braiding sweet grass that we grew in our meditation garden and these are just really the cherished moments of, of the year um, so and it's nice to sort of end that with with this Dharma talk. So first, um, I wanna acknowledge with respect that these lands where we're on right now in Flagstaff are the traditional and ancestral homelands of the Diné, 
Hopiwalapai and Kaibab Paiute. These lands were also home used for trade, gathering, and healing for 12 other tribes, 12 plus even. We recognize the indigenous people as the original stewards of this land and all the relatives within it. As these words of acknowledgement are spoken and heard, the ties nations have to their present, to their traditional homelands are renewed and reaffirmed. We honor the past, present, and future generations of indigenous peoples who have lived here for millennia and will forever call this place home. The founding of our country and its institutions came at a dire cost to native nations and peoples. And this acknowledgement is the education and inclusion we must practice in recognizing our history, responsibility, and commitment to these lands and our communities. And most of that acknowledgement was written in collaboration with some indigenous people at Colorado State University. So I can't take credit for the beautiful words there. So today is Indigenous Peoples Day, um, which is formally known as Columbus Day in some areas, but people recognize that Columbus Day is a sanitation or covering up of the violent colonization of the Americas and settler colonialism that takes place here. I'm gonna mention this word settler colonialism a couple of times, and I just wanna define it quickly. It's a type of colonization that seeks to remove the original inhabitants of a place and replace them with permanent settlers. And part of the problem with settler colonialism is that the settlers remove indigenous peoples and assert false narratives and structures of settler belonging to the place. And I'm bringing this up because I'm, I want to acknowledge the complexity here um, because after 2000 years of my ancestors being chased around the Northern hemisphere, I want to belong somewhere and not belonging anywhere is part of the global problem that we find ourselves in. And it's emphasized now with the amount of refugees being dis displaced across the world. So this Dharma talk is an attempt at exploring belonging very gently and with reverence. And I'm gonna talk about reconnecting ties to the land and, and restoring ourselves. But I just want to acknowledge the contradiction there. And thankfully, the Dharma allows contradictions. So this Dharma talk is an attempt at exploring belonging, um, you know, with gentle, uh, gently and with reverence, as I said, and some of it might resonate um, and other parts may not. So this is an op open invitation to disagree with anything that I have to say. And I want to um, explore climate change and how the Buddha Dharma can help us through these dynamic times. So from my perspective and work, climate change and land degradation are a product of broken relationships between people and the land. And for me, that gets reiterated with every project that I do. So it's very, it's very real for me. So right now for us in this talk, I wanna start where we are, at least for those of you that are in Flagstaff. Um, and for those who aren't, um, maybe just use this as an example of how, of the kinds of things that you can use to um, really go in depth to where you are, whatever ecosystem that you're in. So here in Flagstaff, we're in the middle of the largest ponderosa pine forest on the planet. It's a living, breathing, and ever-changing organism that, like us, is linked to everything around it, like a jewel in Indra's net. 
these links exist between the trees, wildlife, understory plants, rich topography, the soils, the macroinvertebrates, the humans, wind, fire, rain, just to name a few. And we're in the Southern Rocky Ponderosa Pine Forest, which exists between 6,200 and 7,500 feet in elevation on soils that are generally shallow, rocky, well-draining, coarse, and rich in minerals. These are dry forests, living in precipitation zones of 10 to 25 inches in areas with cold winters and warm summers that are often characterized by drought. If you compare this to the rest of the Rocky Mountains, especially at higher elevations, those places will often, those other forests will get about twice as much precipitation in the year as we do in our Ponderosa forest. And the understory of those forests are relatively uh, high in diversity with lots of uh, usually flowering plants with broad leaves kind of tucked in um, beneath a pretty thick canopy of pines. Whereas here, in our Ponderosa forest, we have relatively low diversity, which consists mostly of grasses and maybe some woody shrubs with a few flowering plants. In a balanced Ponderosa forest, trees are spaced far apart with large grassy meadows in between. And also, as many of you are full aware, a healthy Ponderosa forest is shaped by fire. So low intensity surface fires are an important and natural process here. They work to thin ponderosa seedlings, enrich soils, and create diverse structures of open meadows to more closed canopies, which is important for plants and wildlife. So what the forest lacks in plant diversity, it makes up for in structural diversity, which will help support the diverse wildlife. So I've heard fire managers say that they would let children stand near these low intensity surface fires because they're relatively gentle and predictable. And the historic fire return of these low intensity fires in the forest was five to 15 years. So every five or 15 years you're getting uh, one of these fires. So in a healthy forest, the Ponderosa pine is fully mature at 150 years old. And many can live between 200 and 400 years old and some as long as 600. And the older trees are the ones with the namesake pink bark, the Ponderosa. So a healthy forest will have open meadows, pink barked trees, and lots of grasses. But an unhealthy forest happens when, without regular low intensity fire and the forests become unbalanced, weedy, and dense with young trees, which can then cause high intensity, unhealthy crown fires, as many of us are painfully aware, especially the last few years. So dog hair thickets are dense, uh, trees that reduce understory diversity to nearly nothing, so like hardly any grasses down there. And this in turn affects soil nutrients and other ecosystem functions, which reverberates into wildlife habitat and everything else. Some of the forests around Flagstaff haven't seen a fire since 1935. So that's a lot more than five or 15 years. And the post-colonial Ponderosa forests that we call home are far cry from those known by the deep ancestors of this place. And I wanna take a moment to recognize that my example of the forest in Flagstaff is one of many cascading effects of broken relationships. And these patterns of seemingly myopic man land management 
caused by the displacement of indigenous land practices are happening everywhere. So let's talk about climate change on top of all of this. Phew, right? Um, so beyond a change in forest management wrought by settler colonialism and people not understanding the cycles of a place and using top-heavy hierarchical management, climate change poses an additional risk to these forests. Predictions are that it will get hotter in the forest. And these predictions are fairly robust, meaning that the climate models generally agree with this. Um, precipitation is a little bit more difficult to predict, but researchers can say with some confidence that precipitation is going to get weirder. Winters will likely be drier. Summers may get the same amount of rain, but in less frequent and more intense storms with periods of long drought in between. So what this means is there'll be less soil moisture deep into the soils um, that the winter precipitation is really important for getting moisture down deep. And deep moisture is what's needed by our ponderosa trees and some of the woody plants in the forest. And what's gonna happen here is without that moisture, you're gonna see trees dying and we already have seen them um, sort of dry up. And when plants leave, uh, this leads to more erosion, which can cause dropping water tables, dust, higher severity, more frequent fires. Does any of this sound familiar? Yeah, kind of, right? These forests and, and us, the people of these forests are already experiencing these patterns. So in the shallow course, so let's talk about sort of what the long-term reality is here. And in the shallow core soils of the forest on the edge of precipitation ranges for pine forests in general, in a forest that's already stressed from overcrowding, having lost its healthy fire regime, this means change is gonna be dynamic. In a predicted hotter and stranger future, Ponderosa may shift to juniper and oak woodland or even grassland. And the dynamics are already occurring with the Schultz and museum fires here in Flagstaff and in other fires across the West. And this change from Ponderosa to maybe oak is called vegetation type transition. And they're a part of a management vocabulary today. And, and we're watching these dynamics start to take place in many parts of the West. And for many places, these transitions happen after fires or even after multiple fires in the same location. So just because it burned once doesn't mean it's not gonna have a catastrophic fire again. And oftentimes it happens multiple times before finding some kind of stability. So what I just talked about is really intense. And I want to explore what the Dharma has to teach us on how to navigate through this. So we start by noticing what's arising. As these transitions take place, where do we find ourselves in the moment? Does the wind, bird song, the smell of soils and plants disappear? I ask myself in the moment what's happening, what do my senses experience at the thin boundary between me and the dynamic living earth, even amidst the chaos? Does this does the new, any of this news about the, these predictions and the realization this is already happening uh, trigger any kind of greed, hatred, or delusion? Around 
greed or clinging, you know, if you think about just management, you know, something that might arise is feelings of, I don't want to thin the forest. I don't want my special place in the forest to change. Regarding climate change, maybe some feelings that arise here are, I'm really sad that my forest is disappearing. I'm going to move to a wetter place. Around hatred or aversion, you might have some thoughts regarding the management that the changes are ugly. They're doing the forest thinning wrong. I hate the smoke from the prescribed fires. Uh, regarding climate change, you may have some feelings around just anger. I'm so angry that this is even happening and I want to stop it. How can I just stop it? What do we need to do? And if it's delusion, it might manifest and look like, I don't want to know about any of this. The forest is my escape. Don't tell me this information. These changes are disrupting my happy place and my serenity. And then maybe you notice yourself making stories to justify your emotions around any of this. And I just want to say, I do and have gone through all of these kinds of feelings. And I want to remind you that even with all of this, nature is still here and it's complex. So what I try to do is witness the nuance and avoid making up simplistic stories about the forest where it is right now. There will be places that are high risk and places that are refugia, places where transition is happening quickly and places where we hardly notice. And what I try to do is cultivate the ability to stand witness to all of this, the grief of destruction, the beauty of creation, and I try to understand what role I can play. So Buddhist scholar Joanna Macy recognized long ago in the 90s that the gravity of the broken relationship between people and land, and she co-authored a book called Active Hope, and with it developed a movement called The Work That Reconnects. And the work follows four steps. They are gratitude, honoring our pain or grieving, seeing with new and ancient eyes, and going forth. So last year, I did a workshop with the woman in town who's trained in the work that reconnects and explored these four steps. And I like it because I kind of find myself naturally going through all of these. And the process guides our response to climate change and with time brings us closer towards a society in a way of being that supports the flourishing of life. And I'm gonna go through all of these steps and provide you with some personal stories around them. So let's start with the first, which is gratitude. Have you ever gone on a mindful walk or hike and instead of returning to the breath, return to gratitude? It looks something like, hello there rock, I see you. Thank you for offering me a sense of grounding, for making soils, for expanding my sense of time as you slowly journey to the sea. Or hello juniper, thank you for accepting me into your arms, offering me shade and a place to contemplate rootedness. Hello wind, thank you for bringing me messages of a faraway place, for driving weather patterns, for the ways in which you counterbalance stagnancy, for reminding me to be humble to the forces of nature. 
And we all can do this, expressing gratitude, however it feels irrelevant. The Dharma has a lot of teachings around gratitude practice. It's an archetype for living in balance with each other and with the earth. Um, In her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, indigenous scientist, visionary, and author Robin Wall Kimmerer shares with us gratitude practice from the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And I'm just going to read a couple lines from this practice. So it goes, today we have gathered and when we look upon the faces around us, see that the cycles of life continue. We have been given the duty to live in balance and harmony with each other and all living things. So now let us bring our minds together as one as we give greetings and thanks to each other as people. This prayer continues on to thank mother the earth, fish, plants, berries, food plants, medicine herbs, trees, animals, birds, four winds, thunder beings, the sun, the moon, the stars, our teachers, and the creator or great spirit. And this was a daily prayer for folks. And I'm not suggesting that we take this prayer on and do it daily. In fact, that might be kind of an act of continuing the taking and, you know, um, and colonization, not stealing, but maybe we can use it to inform our behavior in some way. And I just like to imagine that what if something like this was our pledge of allegiance that we give in grade school every day? Imagine what it would be like to stop long enough to individually contemplate and think 16 different entities. It'd probably take some time and imagine what that pause would be like and how it would ripple out in our modern busy lives. And this kind of daily practice of witnessing and honoring our interbeing would strengthen that which Thich Nhat Hanh calls the inter-R. It's a contemplation that when the rain, wind, and sun sweep across the forest also sweeps across this body and this mind. And that really is the power of gratitude. It, strength, it strengthens the inter-R-ness of being. So let's get into step two, which is grief. So Bio Akumalafe, who's an author, father, and post-activist, poses this question when speaking about climate change. He says, what if tending grief is an opportunity for transformation? What happens when I stand witness and give up hope for a different future? Asking what if we stop grasping for stability and allow ourselves the space to feel all the feels? So when I think about grief and greed, hatred, and delusion, it really kind of helps me navigate some of that when that arises when, when I'm thinking about climate change. So around greed or grasping, this giving up hope for a different future has really calmed my anger. It gives, it gives me a way to somehow accept the change. I can't do anything about what is already happening. And this affords me more options to move within new realities. Around aversion, grief is an act of accepting reality. Through my grief, I no longer want to run to a wetter place, but instead grow my roots deeper right where I stand. 
Grief serves as an act of respect and deepens my relationship with home. Around delusion, for me, I have the most sadness and grief around the brokenness that resulted in settler colonialism and the land that's missing its people and their relationships as they once were. So I also realize that that is just a story and the reality is actually more complex, that people are always doing the best they can given the circumstances that they've had when they're thinking about managing the land. And a lot of reciprocal relationships exist, never disappeared and are being recovered and resurrected. So I wanna turn return for a moment to this concept that bioposes around uh, giving up hope for a different future. And in this ceasing to look for solutions to the problem. He says, what if the ways we respond to crisis is part of the crisis? In what ways do our strivings for recognition and solutions just reinscribe the legitimacy of statehood and its undercurrents of violence? And I find that really intriguing. And I've been really, it's just, I've been sitting with that. And maybe is it, if it resonates with you, you can also ask yourself this thing that we do around finding solutions to the problem of climate change, is this really part of the problem? And Bio Kumalafe also says that this grieving is giving us space to fail, to not return to old patterns that are part of the problem. And this opens up new possibilities, which brings us to the third step in Joanna Macy's cycle, which is seeing with new and ancient eyes. So our role on earth is to be human. And this is the part of earth that gets to experience all of this unique type of consciousness. We are the earth seeing itself. And how do we experience the sacred in the middle of this transition? How do we cultivate gratitude for our ability to witness and our ability to love? Seeing with new eyes is about developing perceptions to witness the present moment without stories attached to greed, hatred, or delusion. Seeing the nuance and complexity is a way through climate change. So in my day job, I, I find myself doing climate adaptation with large groups of land managers and scientists. And we sit in a room developing some kind of appropriate response, which looks like portfolios of management actions that, that never before existed. The key to this work is understanding the nuances and the complexities of the impacts of climate change and recognizing that no one has a solution, but we can co-develop some kind of movement through the unknown by evoking our minds that witness and our hearts that care. So this is seeing with new eyes and being present. Back to Robin Wall Kimmerer, she says that humanity is at a crossroads. We can take the path of doing things the same which got us into this mess, or we can choose a more verdant than green future. In order to take that second path, that green path, though, she says, we need to turn around and pick up some things we've forgotten. And this is what we mean by seeing with ancient eyes, 
to come to understand how human archetypes and ancient messages on how to live reciprocally with the earth. So this is an invitation that is up to us to explore individually and collectively. And Robin calls this restoration instead of restoration. It's also a call to develop new stories around who we are as a community with earth. And we are reminded that we are not only keepers of the land, but the land also keeps us. So fourth step going forth. So after expressing gratitude, giving ourselves time to grieve, cultivating the ability to witness the present moment with an open heart and mind, it's time to ask ourselves, what actions do we take in response? Again, something from Bio Kumalafe, he says, instead of asking what's in it for me, we can ask, how am I in it? And how is it in me? How are we implicated, hailed, called upon, tugged on, pulled, and invited by the world around us. So in light of that, I wanna share some personal examples about how these steps manifest themselves in my life. So an example of grieving with active hope. So when Jeff, my husband and I moved into our new house a couple years ago, we had a dead ponderosa in our front yard. We had it cut down, and we used the mulch for our backyard garden, so none of it went to waste. And in its place, near the stump, we planted a garden of desert plants, agave, bear grass, the Torre desert willow, uh, globe mallow. And this garden is now an homage to ecological transition and climate change. We call it our altar to climate change. And this altar not only reminds us of the sanctity of our response to climate change, to this dead ponderosa, which is just in our own yard, but also serves as a seed source for plants that will carry us into the future. It is an act of hope, respect, and honoring what is happening in the present moment. And I said, this is our grieving with active hope. And what I mean by this is that we are giving ourselves an opportunity to grieve the ponderosa and its gifts of shade and sweet maple scented air. And this grief offered us the opportunity for transformation. Through it, we developed actions to take through the change by seeing the space differently, identifying and planting with hope, plants that can survive here now and into a hotter and drier future. So I wanna share one more example of how I've recently used the cycle, how it's just arisen really. So we're now well into autumn, it's supposed to freeze tonight. And as a gardener and a botanist, I've been having a hard time. Um, and so I, I just have a hard time thinking about going into fall and not being in summer. And so I've been trying to do my gratitude practices, right? And so for me, this looks like I'm so grateful that my the roses in my garden smell like heaven or I'm, I've grown tomatoes and they're so delicious on my freshly harvested garden greens. But honestly, these gratitude practice are only leading me further into step two, which is feeling the pain and grieving. Like I'm having full on tantrums when I think about the end of my flower garden and the end of the hot sun and the warm nights. And I'm kind of in a rut with this and just kind of cranky about it. Um, but coincidentally, um, I've been also spending a fair amount of time doing field work for my job the past few weeks. 
and have been out there witnessing firsthand the changes in the season. And this has been really nice because I haven't had a chance to get out into the field really much since COVID. And I was called out to monitor a couple experimental plots and collect some seeds for future studies. And all of this work was done within an hour's drive of town. And so collecting seeds is the super fun scavenger hunt. So first I have to identify the species we want. So I'm, I'm collecting seeds of native species and I need to know which species are abundant, widespread, good for restoration, hopefully climate change winter, winners, which means they're predicted to be able to handle a hotter and stranger future. And so after I decide which ones, which species I want, then I have to find them and enter into a relationship with them, so to speak. So I need to know when their seeds will be ripe and where. And for example, right now, the blue gramma grass is past due on the north side, so too late to pick that but still great for harvest on the east side of town, out in the rangelands, a little bit lower in elevation. So I'm out there doing this dance with the plants over the past couple of weeks. And in the meanwhile, hearing sweet songs of migrating birds, smelling the sagebrush, uh, enjoying the lower angle of the sun as it lights up the seed heads on the grass. And towards the end of my last field excursion, I, I was able to pause in the moment, breathing. I sense this feeling of warmness in my chest and it was coming from this feeling of reconnecting to the rhythms of nature. And there was this fullness, this completeness in my heart and in my body. And the aversion to autumn was still there but so is a feeling of connection and completeness. And I realized that I had progressed to starting to see the seasons change with the new eyes. And by harvesting seed, I was going forward with active hope and a sense that I belonged and that my actions mattered as I stepped further into an uncertain future. So that's how I want to close, um, that through gratitude, grief, living in the moment away from false stories, reconnecting with ancient practices and seeing the present moment and moving forward with active hope is biocultural restoration. It's restoration and recognizing our roles as witness and lover. We are both healing the land and healing ourselves. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Molly. Really appreciate it. Really so touching and, uh, and clarifying as well. What we'll do now is let's take uh, a two minutes just to move the body and then we'll come back and I'll be guiding you into the meditation using some of these elements that that uh, that Molly spoke about and of, of what she learned from Joanna Macy. So let's come back at uh, 39 minutes, let's say 40 minutes past the hour and we'll begin to meditate together. Thanks again, Molly.
Okay, so we'll be beginning again here. So if you can hear the sound of my voice, you might want to return to your device. As we take the next step with what Molly was sharing with us. Which is uh, bringing some of these uh, and exploring them through our meditation. So more directly, some of these pieces. And in light of this, I invite you to find a posture that feels supportive. Allowing your attention to come inward. And maybe begin by simply feeling the body. Feeling the body right now is a way of beginning. And as you feel the body, I invite you to allow for a quality of relaxation, allowing the body to settle, allowing the body to relax. Maybe allowing the shoulders to drop and the jaw to loosen. Maybe allow for a quality of relaxation in the belly and the stomach. And allowing the pelvic floor to drop downward and open. So that you can bodily arrive here in the present moment. I now invite you to begin with this first step that Molly shared with us from Joanna Macy, which is this quality of gratitude. And to slow down and to see what arises in your heart in terms of what are you grateful for right now? And in particular, can you allow your heart to be grateful for anything that is infused with this wisdom of, as Molly mentioned, inter-arness of being that comes from Thich Nhat Hanh, or simply put, inter-being. <laughs> what is that for you right now? the sun and the moon, the trees outside where you are. Are 
the rocks and the dirt. What fills your heart with gratitude, thankfulness? Maybe it's some way that this quality of interbeing has touched you today. If you're in Flagstaff feeling the cool, cold wind, or the thunder outside that I just heard. And I invite you also to be grateful for things that might be closer, like the activity of breathing. Can you feel when you breathe in that it's a part of this quality of interbeing or interconnectedness? I breathe in the earth and I breathe out the earth. Not just thinking that right now, but feeling it with a quality of gratitude. And you might allow that quality of gratitude to put a slight smile on your face. And now lingering with whatever you're grateful for in the moment, whether it's the breath, or the gratitude for the act of being alive in this moment as you feel that, as we now savor this in silence. I now invite you to transition to this second step that Molly shared with us. This arena of pain and grieving. 
And more broadly, as she put it, it's an act of accepting reality, accepting things as they are right now. And the way I invite you to engage in that is just to notice how you feel right now. Maybe there's a sense of calm and contentment to feel that. Maybe Molly's talk stirred something for you. Would you be willing to feel that, whether it be the anger or the grief or the confusion? Or whatever other feeling is there, sleepiness, excitement, irritation. Not as a way of finding a solution, but rather to be with right now, what you're noticing in this moment. And if you can't find anything, maybe simply being with the feeling of the breath. And when you notice your mind gets lost in thought or some story, yes, to acknowledge that that's what's going on, and then return to feeling your experience, like feeling the body and the posture it's in, feeling your breath, or feeling any emotion that's there, just whatever's there, as we continue this act, this act of accepting reality, accepting things as they are right now.
Continue with this art of accepting reality, of accepting things as they are, this act of this. Or you could say this art of witnessing your immediate experience. With no need to fix or solve right now or figure out, would you be willing just to feel however it is right now? Where is your mind right now? Would you be willing to simply witness what it's been doing? And then to come back and witness through feeling the body, feeling what's going on right now.
I now invite you to make another transition in your meditation right now. And that's in this third arena that Molly shared with us, which is practicing this act of seeing with new and ancient eyes. She said, like the earth seeing itself. And in particular, right now, as you continue to meditate, feeling the body, your direct experience, can you begin to feel yourself not on the earth, but rather as the earth? Trees emerge from the earth, grasses emerge from the earth, snakes and ants and other creatures emerge from the earth. Can you feel the body as just something that has emerged from the earth and is the earth? Right now, as you feel the body, all the cells of your body have arisen. They are simply an arising out of this earth. If you're like me, you might notice that there's a very deep, habitual way of perceiving ourselves as individuals separate from the earth. This deep habit rooted in a broken relationship, as Molly pointed out. Right now, can you take the tiny step of beginning to heal that relationship, to feel yourself as earth. It's not you breathing, it's the earth breathing. It's not you pulsing with blood, it's the earth pulsing with blood. The thoughts, the feelings, the sleepiness, the agitation, the calm, to play with feeling that as earth.
Would you be willing right now to play with this feeling sense of your experience, not as an individual, but something vaster as a part of the earth, as earth, feeling the body and your experience that way. Continuing this way in, in the silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.